Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. Normally, if you've been here for any length of time, you know that typically what we do uh, when we preach on Sundays is we go through books of the Bible, and I take the next section in the book, and that's what I've done for the last year and a half that we've been here. Uh, Today is going to be different. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about church membership, and I've entitled the sermon, as you see there, Following Jesus Together, uh, the Meaning of Church Membership. That's going to be the subject of our sermon today. And I decided to do this for a couple of reasons, partly, of course, because Rob and Jade are joining with us. And I kind of wanted to give you a feel for what they're doing, because to some of you, I know you hear they're joining the church. What does that mean? Uh, And so I just wanted to give you a little bit of an idea of what it means to join a church. And then also I wanted to answer some questions that I've received the last several months uh, on the subject of church membership. Uh, Many of you, and this isn't targeted at any one person, many of you have asked similar questions about, you know, why even join a church? Uh, Why can't I just attend? What's the difference? Uh, Why do we limit the Lord's Supper to members of our church? Things like that are questions I get regularly, so I thought I would address them all here this morning. Uh, Six questions I'm going to try to answer today. Number one, why do we even need to attend church? So that's where we're going to start. Uh, Number two, what is a church supposed to be? Number three, who runs the church? Who makes the decisions in the church? Number four, why should I join the church instead of just attending? Uh, Number five, why do we restrict the Lord's Supper to members only? And then number six, and this might be the most important question, is church membership even in the Bible? A very common objection to the idea of joining a church in some formal way is, well, I don't see that in the Bible. So we're going to cover some of those things this morning. Now, to be honest, I wrestled with this uh, for quite a while because I know many of our folks here are not members And that's fine. This is not at all, again, targeted at you for not being a member. I just wanted to answer some of these questions. Uh, Number two, uh, second kind of hesitation I had was I didn't want anybody to feel like they're a second-class Christian if they decide not to join our church. Um, If you have attended our church and you say, well, I'm not sure if I want to be a member, I'm just going to keep attending, that's fine. Uh, You will not be pressured into this, and uh, I won't mention it to you specifically trying to urge you to do this. It's just something I wanted to explain. But I decided, even with those hesitations, to go ahead and address the subject again, because many of you have expressed uh, some level of interest in membership uh, or some confusion about related subjects, so I thought we would address those all today. Uh, Let me just say before we get started that much of what we're going to look at this morning will be very countercultural. We tend to be very individualistic in American culture. Uh, We tend to want benefits with no commitment. Uh, Companies advertise, no contract, no commitment required. Uh, You can subscribe to our service. You can quit anytime you like. We value the ability to be free and independent, to change our minds, to not be tied down to something. And that kind of mentality has made its way into our churches as well. But we as Christians should get our marching orders from Christ, not the culture. We should run our church and follow the model instructions of the New Testament. I hope we can all agree on that. That as we look at various passages of Scripture today, uh, we're going to follow whatever is in the text of our Bibles. That is our commitment here at this church, and I hope that that is yours as well. So, uh, this morning, that is really my main goal, is to give you a feel for what God intended the local church to be. And we're going to start right away with that first question, why attend church? Before we get into membership, let's just tackle the question, why go to a physical building every week and gather with Christians? Why even attend a church? Uh, Some people would say, well, I I can worship God at home. That's true. Uh, I can listen to better preaching at home. I'm sure you can. Uh, All of that is true. All of that is great. I listen to preaching all the time. There's some great uh, Bible teachers all over the internet that are uh, well worth your time, but none of that substitutes for gathering with a local church. Let's begin with Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul writes concerning the church that God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So there's uh, pastors, there's teachers that are given to the church to help teach and equip the members of the church and build up spiritually everyone in the church. 
Continuing on to verse 13, they do this until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So you see, the first reason that we're all, uh, we should be attending church and being instructed by pastors and teachers in the church is to grow in our faith, to grow in our knowledge, to grow in our spiritual maturity, and to be more like Jesus. You see that at the end there, to attain the stature of the fullness of Christ. So we attend church to grow spiritually. Uh, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Okay, so Paul is giving here what happens when someone doesn't attend church. He starts off by saying in the church there's, uh, there's pastors, there's teachers that uh, instruct us and equip us for the work of ministry uh, so that we can be built up, mature spiritually, so that we may no longer be children that are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by human deceivers. And so uh, what happens when someone is not attending a local church is that they often are misled into doctrinal error. Uh, gathering as a church, the pastors and teachers instructing and building us up in the faith, that's verses 11 to 13. That's the first reason to attend a church. Then Paul says we also do this so that we're not tossed by every wind of doctrine, so that false teachers don't deceive us. And I'll just say this, I don't know of any strong Christians who are solid in their theology that are not members, active members of a local church. I don't know of any. Uh, most of the people that I know that are disconnected from a church that kind of have that mentality, I can worship God at home, I can listen to preaching at home, often uh, they're all over the map in terms of theology because they're not plugged into a local church. There's a stability that comes from being plugged into a church and hearing God's word taught week after week, knowing your pastor personally so you can uh, ask questions and dig into the word together, uh, which by the way is one of my favorite things as a pastor. I love when people ask me Bible questions. I love sitting down with you, going through scriptures, and uh, talking about those matters. And if you ever have a question like that, please don't hesitate to ask me. I may not have all of the answers, uh, but it is a part of my job, according to scripture, uh, to help guide you and shepherd you and be a resource for you in those ways. So we gather as a church for the teaching, the instruction of the word, to keep our, us on track so we're not carried off into doctrinal error. Uh, and this is one of my main concerns with Christians who spend uh, more time listening to, you know, preacher, whatever preachers on TV and uh, reading articles on the internet, but they aren't connected to a local church because the church helps ground you doctrinally. This is what Paul said was God's design for the church. He writes in 1 Timothy 3, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. A pillar supports, a buttress protects, and that's the way he describes the church. The church supports the truth. The church protects the truth. It helps give uh, ballast to your Christian maturity. Actively attending week after week a, a solid church will help you to learn the foundations of our faith and to be able to spot error when false teachers uh, teach something that's contrary to the word of God. Uh, back to Ephesians 4, Paul has said, we, we gather for teaching, we gather for instruction, for building up in the faith. We gather, gather as a protection, right, to keep us from a doctrinal error. Then verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Okay, so here Paul is using a metaphor of a human body and applying it to a church. He's saying a body has many members that work together to make everything work. And in the same way, a church is joined and held together by each member of the church. In other words, each person has a role to play. And when each part of the body is working properly, the body grows and it functions as intended. Paul says that just like that, when, when each member of a church is doing their part, the whole church benefits from that. Another reason for you to attend church is for the sake of everybody else here. A body needs each member to do its part. I mean, if your heart decided not to show up one day, uh, you would be dead. If your brain took a day off, that would not go well for you. Each member of the body needs to be active and attending a local church for the sake of the church. Uh, next, another reason to attend the, the uh, church is the word church. 
I try not to give you too much Greek, but this is an easy one, maybe one you've heard of. Ekklesia is the word for church, and it simply means assembly or gathering. And so in the simplest terms, a church is a gathering together of believers. Maybe you've heard this before. Church is not a building. Church is not a location. Church is a people. It is a group of people uh, that gather together around the doctrines of Christ. And so a church is a group of Christians. It's people that are gathered or assembled together. This is one reason I'm not a fan of the idea of online church. Okay, online church is not church because to be a church means you assemble. That's what the word itself means. And the most foundational aspect of a church isn't a sermon. In other words, church is not just an event that you attend uh, to come hear a sermon each week. Obviously, yes, teaching the word of God is uh, right at the center of what we do when we gather. But the most foundational aspect of church life is the fact that there are believers gathering together. Yes, we teach the Bible when we gather. We, we observe the ordinances of baptism, the Lord's Supper as a church. Uh, we sing songs of worship to our God. But church isn't a building. Church isn't a place. Church isn't an event. Church is a group of people. And so Lakeshore Baptist Church is wherever this group of people meets together. And we gather because that's what it means to be a church. From the very beginning of the book of Acts, we see the churches forming, uh, sometimes in people's homes. Uh, some people like, uh, I think it was Priscilla and Aquila, had a church in their house. They had opened up their church, I'm sorry, their, their home to become a church because it wasn't about the location. It was about the fact that this was a place where believers in Jesus were gathering together, uh, teaching the Bible, observing the ordinances, worshiping God, and following Jesus together. So aside from all of what's been said here, I think we've, we've got already a pretty decent reason to attend church. And I assume that's not too controversial because you're all here. Uh, so this isn't even at you, I guess. I'm preaching at all those people that, that didn't show up today. Uh, but aside from all of that, let's get to the most important reason. Okay, The most important reason to attend church is because God has commanded us to. Uh, R.C. Sproul used to say, when God says something, the argument is over. I like that a lot. I saw that quote last week and I decided right away that's going to be one I bring up all the time because it applies to so many good things. So you can just expect to hear that from me in the future. When God says something, the argument is over. We can debate about a lot of things, but when God says something clearly and explicitly in Scripture, the time for arguing ends. And now it's time to obey what he said. So let's look together at Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 24, where it says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This would be probably the clearest place in the Bible uh, where Christians are commanded to attend church. The author of Hebrews is, uh, says, don't neglect to meet together. Show up when your church is gathering. And notice the reasons that he gives. Uh, you should be at church in order to, verse 24, stir up one another to love and good works. And then verse 25, encourage one another. Uh, that's, that's why we gather as a church, according to these two verses. I'm glad you listened to John Piper on the internet. Uh, that's not a replacement for gathering as a church. Because Hebrews 10 doesn't say, you need to come to church to hear good preaching. No, it says you need to come to church to encourage one another, to stir each other up to love and good works. In other words, we gather as a church to provoke one another to do right. We push each other to follow Christ, to stay away from sin. Uh, we encourage one another and comfort one another during difficult seasons of life. Church is about doing life together. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I don't know if I need that. I think I can follow Christ on my own. A lot of us have that mentality that we can survive just fine on our own as a Christian, and so we can be hit and miss with church attendance. And frankly, uh, I think that's a bit, uh, well, I think it's a bit misguided. I think some of us, as I'll say a little bit later, think we're stronger than we are. Okay, I do think we need the church. But let me also say, even if that were true, uh, frankly, I think that's self-centered thinking. Maybe you don't need encouragement and guidance from others in the church, but what about those who may need that from you? Maybe you don't feel you need encouragement, comfort. Uh, maybe you don't feel you need to be provoked to follow Jesus. But maybe you think you can be a, a growing Christian and never be a part of a church. What about everybody else? What if they need you to encourage them? 
What if they are the ones that's hurting and you could bring some comfort? What if they are struggling with their walk with God and you could bring some loving provocation, stirring them up to follow Christ? A church isn't just about you coming and receiving benefits. We tend to think of attending church like attending a movie where we come and we sit and listen and then we leave. That's not the biblical idea of a church. It's a place where everyone helps each other to follow Christ and you have a role to play in that work. Now let's back up a bit. We've talked about why we should attend church. Let's talk now about what is a church. Uh, The Bible uses many metaphors to describe various aspects of church life. We've seen already that the church is called the pillar and buttress of the truth. And we learn from that metaphor that the church is a protection from doctrinal error. We come to church to be instructed in scripture and grounded so that we can distinguish what is true from what is false. And then another metaphor we've already seen is that of a body. Right? Paul says the church is called the body of Christ. Each member in the church is compared to a body part, each one having a role to play in the overall function and health of the body. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul writes again, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, <laughs> this is one of the funniest passages in Scripture, right, where the body parts start talking to each other. Uh, if the foot should say, behold, uh, by the way, I always think of Mike Wazowski. Uh, when I'm reading, have you guys seen Monster Zinc, the guy that's just an eyeball? I always think of that when I read this. But anyways, uh, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it le- any less a part of the body. If the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less a part of the body. You see what's happening here is people in the church sometimes have this mentality, well, I'm not as important as that guy over there. I don't really have much of a role to play in the church. And Paul is saying, absolutely not. Uh, Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, there's Mike Wazowski, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? In other words, uh, just because your nose might not be as important as your eyes doesn't mean that you can just get rid of your nose. It still has a role to play. Verse 18, as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Again, this is a a slightly different angle of the same principle, right? Some people in the church think, well, I'm not as important. I don't, you know, I don't belong to this church. I'm not a big deal there. Other people think I'm the big deal at the church, right? And all of you little peons don't really have much of a role. And Paul says, no, the eye can't say to the hand, I I don't need you. I've, I've got this. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. On our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. What we learn from this metaphor is is found in that last verse, that as members of the body of Christ, a local church, we are to care for one another. Uh, When you slam your hand in a car door, instinctively, your other hand grabs it right away. Uh, The body cares for one another. When you hurt your foot, your body limps to keep the weight off of it. In other words, your body parts react to help one another. And that's the way it ought to be in a church. Verse 26, Paul continues, If one member suffers, all suffer. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. So we as the church do life together. When one member is hurting, the others come in to help and to pray and to comfort and encourage. When one one member is blessed, we all rejoice with them together. Uh, One final metaphor I'll mention here just in passing that we see in, uh, I'm sorry, that we'll look at here in a little bit is, that of a sheep and shepherd. This is another metaphor of the church, right? The sheep, the flock of God, and the pastors would be compared to the under shepherds of the church. In fact, uh, the word pastor comes from the Latin word shepherd. It's literally what the word pastor means. And so again, we're not going to look at those texts right now. We're going to get into some of that a little bit later. But that metaphor is emphasizing the responsibility that pastors have to care for the people in the church, to provide spiritual nourishment and protection for them like a shepherd uh, cares for the sheep. Likewise, the sheep, as the sheep follow the shepherd, the members of the church are to follow the leading of the pastors in the church. Again, we'll get there in a minute. Uh, th- those are some metaphors for the church that we see in Scripture. We'll look at one more very quickly, 
and that is the bride of Christ. The church is called Christ's bride. And the image of a bride on the wedding day being presented to Christ in purity, it shows the importance of a church being a group of sincere followers of Jesus. In other words, I think the main, uh, the main uh, emphasis in that metaphor is purity. Right, a, a bride pictures with a white wedding dress showing that she's pure. And that's the way that the church is to be in relation to Christ. Ephesians 5, verse 25, Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he may present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be holy and without blemish. We should not appear to be spiritual on Sundays and then live in sin throughout the week. Rather, a church should have a high regard for personal holiness. Like a pure woman dressing in a white wedding dress being presented for the marriage, in the same way a church should maintain purity and separation from sin and the stain of the world, being wholly committed to Christ. All right, we've talked about why we should gather as a church, what a church is. Uh, now we're going to talk briefly about what do we do when we gather. Okay, what is it that we're supposed to do? We're supposed to attend church, got that. What do we do once we get here? Uh, here's a few things we can see. First, starting in Acts 20. And uh, this is going to show us the priority of the Word of God in our gatherings. Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, so this is Sunday, uh, they were gathered together to break bread. So this is a, a church being gathered together. Breaking bread in, in uh, the book of Acts typically is referring to the Lord's Supper, by the way. Uh, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, that's a long sermon. Uh, aren't you all glad that I'm not going to be preaching until midnight today? Uh, by the way, if you keep reading, somebody falls asleep and falls out of a window, and it ends up a really interesting story there in Acts 20. Uh, but you can see here the priority of preaching. When the church gathered in the New Testament, they preached the Word of God. Next, 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, the Lord's Supper, partaking of the Lord's Supper, is something that they did as a church. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is uh, for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Notice Paul does not tell us how often to take the bread and the cup. He just says, do it as often as you do it. And as every time you do it, do it in remembrance of Christ's death. Uh, more on this later. We're going to get to that a little bit more in detail. But communion or the Lord's Supper is another thing that we do as a church. Next, when we gather as a church, we sing. Uh, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You cannot do that at home. You can sing at home, but you can't do uh, Colossians 3.16, teaching and admonishing one another through the singing. Okay, in other words, uh, there is something about singing to one another that God wants us to be doing as a local church. Yes, we're singing to God. Okay, obviously our, our uh, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs are in thankfulness directed to God. But he also wants us to come together, to sing as a body of believers to Christ. Uh, listen to what Paul says in another place, Ephesians 5.18. Do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The same idea there again. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. We are addressing one another in our songs. Notice at the end of verse that we're singing to the Lord. Okay, so we sing from our hearts to God, and yet somehow in that, we're also addressing one another, which means this cannot be done alone. Again, you can sing to God alone, no problem with that. But what Paul is talking about here is the local church gathering together and worshiping God together. And he wants us to do this. God wants us to gather with other Christians and sing together to our God as a church. And ultimately, everything that we do as a church should be done for the purpose of of building one another up. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 14. What then, brothers, when you come together, so there's your church gathering, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Committing yourself to a church helps you to be in a community of other Christians instead of being a lone ranger. 
American Christianity, again, is very individualistic. But the Bible teaches us to be with other believers in a local family. Over and over, we're told, come together, gather together, care for one another, bear one another's burdens, teach one another, comfort one another, encourage one another, help each other follow Jesus. And that's what we do when we gather as a church. Now, uh, let's talk briefly about church polity, which just means basically how the church is ordered in the New Testament, right? What is the, uh, some churches, you know, you have basically a straight democracy, right? Congregational churches, they vote on everything. Uh, somebody wants to paint a wall and they all take a church vote and half of it splits over it. It's a mess. Uh, other churches have a pastor ruled model where you've got one guy who makes all of the decisions and basically runs the church, does whatever he wants, decides his own salary, and that's also a mess. Okay, Neither one of those is what the New Testament instructs. Uh, here's what we see. 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul says, Let the elders, notice plural, who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor. That's a financial term talking about paying them, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So there's a position in the church of elder or pastor, also called overseer. Uh, those terms are used interchangeably throughout the New Testament. They're all referring to the same office. And the elders or the pastors are to rule the church, meaning they give the oversight. They lead the church. They're also, as you see in that verse, responsible to labor in preaching and teaching the word of God. And so you could break down the office of a pastor with three primary responsibilities. Uh, first would be ruling, which is leading the business of the church, making decisions, etc. Uh, second, pastors are responsible to shepherd the people. And then thirdly, uh, they are responsible to teach and preach the word of God. And Paul says that these elders who do their job well are to be considered worthy of double honor, which again, in the context, Paul is talking about them being financially supported by the church. And so a church is to ideally hire pastors, uh, select men that are gifted within the church and say, okay, we want you to bring the word of God to us each week to lead our church. And uh, they are ideally, again, uh, quit your secular job, work full time as a pastor. That is the New Testament model. Now at our church, currently I'm bivocational. I think you all know that I pastor here and then I work a, a secular job. That's just where our church is at financially. But ideally, uh, someday I would love to quit that other job and work full-time as a pastor. That's the model we see throughout the New Testament. The pastors are selected in the church to lead, to teach, they're giving, and they are to give themselves wholly to that task. First uh, Peter 5.1, here are Peter's instructions to elders. He says, I exhort the elders among you, again, notice, plural. It's not one pastor, it's multiple. Okay, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is to be revealed. Uh, shepherd, here's the instruction, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, so not just trying to get rich off of the church, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. And so you see a balance in those verses that elders or pastors in the church are to oversee the functions of the church. They are to lead the church, but they're not to do this in a domineering way. A pastor should not be cultish in their leadership. And so often we see the extreme of domineering leaders in the church. And so the pendulum swings all the way to the other side where pastors basically don't lead the church at all. And both extremes are wrong. As a pastor, I have a responsibility to lead our church and to shepherd those under my care. And again, I don't do this alone. Malachi and Marvin are both elders of our church as well. We have equal authority. I don't make the decisions on my own. We confer together and lead the church in that way. Notice in all of these texts that we've looked at, again, it's not just one pastor, it's multiple. I believe when one guy is making all the decisions and running the church, that's a recipe for disaster. And I've seen that firsthand. Uh, the New Testament is clear. That leadership should be shared by men that are selected for that position. Let's look at a few more texts on this. Acts 20, verse 17. From Miletus, Paul, he sent uh, to Ephesus and called the elders, plural, of the church, singular, to come to him. Okay, so one church in Ephesus has multiple elders. Uh, let's look down at verse 28. This is sort of a job description of what these elders do. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, Again, you see that imagery of uh, shepherding and uh, sheep in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So that's that sort of care and pastoring people. Uh, that is the 
job of an elder or pastor. James 5, same idea here. Is anyone sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Again, plural elders in one church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Uh, One final text on this. Paul writes to the church in Philippi. He says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers, plural, and deacons. And so again, you see the very same model there, that the, that the church in Philippi had multiple overseers, multiple deacons. By the way, the word deacon uh, simply means servant. Okay, so this would be somebody who, uh, it could be somebody who cleans the building, somebody who does the bookkeeping, somebody who uh, serves in some specific role like that in the church. Uh, they're not so much leading and teaching the church as much as administrating some function of the church. And so in the New Testament, the church selects qualified men to serve as pastors. And these pastors are responsible to lead the church, shepherd the members, and teach the Bible. Now, uh, that's the end of my introduction. Uh, Now we get to (laughs) the main point of our sermon today. Uh, The main question I wanted to address, why should you join a church? I had to kind of cover all of those individual parts because they all have uh, a role in this question of why should you join a church? I think the main reason that this is a common question is that there's a common misconception of what a church is. Many people think that church is an event on Sundays that you attend rather than a family of believers to which you belong. And if that's your view of the church, why not just attend? Uh, Why would you join if it's just like going to a movie or whatever, attending some event? But if a church, according to the Bible, is a group of believers that covenant to follow Christ together, then the idea of just sitting and attending makes less and less sense. In other words, church isn't just somewhere that you should go to. Church is a group to which you should belong. And so is church membership in the Bible? That's a very common question. I'll do my best to answer that here. Let's start with Acts chapter 9. This is shortly after the conversion of Paul, very famous conversion story, right? Paul is uh, persecuting the church. He's uh, hauling off Christians to jail. And then miraculously, he's saved. He's converted to Christ. He becomes a follower of Jesus. And so he goes, uh, he's baptized by Ananias. Then he comes down in verse 26, and he wants to join the church in Jerusalem. Notice, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Now, this was understandable. Paul had been persecuting Christians, so they were like, I don't know if this guy's uh, just trying to sneak into our church, and then he's going to haul us all off to jail. It's an understanding, uh, understandable concern that they have. But notice, the first thing Paul does When he becomes a Christian, he gets baptized, and then he goes right down and tries to join a church. He doesn't uh, go preaching right away. Instead, he wants to join himself to the disciples at Jerusalem with this local group of Christians. Now, as we talk about church membership, it's important not to think of it like a gym membership. If any of you have gone through a membership process with me at all, this is one of the first things I say, right? A gym membership, you pay a fee each month, you get access to certain facilities, and there's zero commitment. Uh, You can have a gym membership and never show up to the gym. Uh, You can cancel anytime you'd like. Church membership is not like that. Uh, Church membership is more like being a member of a family. There are expectations that are inherent in membership in a church. Uh, One of my favorite passages on church membership is Acts chapter 2. Uh, This is the day of Pentecost where a church of 120 in Jerusalem grows by 3,000 in one day. Okay, starting in verse 41, we'll see those who had received his word, Peter has preached the gospel, and those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Notice verse 42, they devoted themselves, these 3,000 that were added to the church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to breaking of bread and prayers. Again, breaking of bread probably would be a term that's uh, referring to the Lord's Supper. So notice the key word in verse 42, devoted. Okay, They committed themselves to follow the apostles' teaching, to gather regularly for fellowship, uh, for communion, and for prayer. Now, uh, verse 44, let's continue on. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings, distributing the the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Notice in those verses, 
the level of commitment and togetherness in this church. Those in the church were selling their possessions, donating the proceeds to the church. If somebody in the church was in need, the others would give to meet the need. That's not something you do for the other people at the gym. Okay, that's family relations. They met daily, not just in their formal meetings, but even in one another's homes, eating meals together, worshiping God together. This is the picture in the New Testament of local church life. And it all starts with Christians who are willing to not just attend, but, verse 41, devote themselves to the church. That's church membership. Attending church without becoming a member is sort of like, uh, and this is... This isn't the same extent, but it's a similar in kind. When a man and woman live together without getting married, you have all of the uh, benefits with none of the responsibilities, right? I, I, getting married means I'm taking on responsibility. I'm committing to this person. One of those, uh, one of the things that that does, by the way, when you get married, is it makes it harder to leave, right? When, when my when my wife and I were just dating, I mean, we could break up every other week if we wanted, right? Uh, when you're married, it's a lot more complicated. And that's by design. That's, that's a feature, not a bug of marriage. Because there are going to be times when things are hard, things are tough. And you, you might wish, man, I don't know if I want to continue in this. But marriage is that uh, it, it, it solidifies your commitment to one another. And the same sort of idea is here in church membership. The members of a church are committing to one another. They're devoting to one another. Uh, the church is taking responsibility for you, and you are taking responsibility for this church. And so the first reason and most important reason to join a church is because it's biblical. Uh, Paul wanted to join the church at Jerusalem, those new Christians in Acts 2. They were added to the church, they devoted themselves together, and they made that commitment to follow Christ together. And that's really all it means to join a church. It's committing to this local body of believers. Another reason to join a church and become a member is because of the pastor-member relationship we talked about earlier. This is why so many of these kind of foundational things I had to kind of get in order. Uh, the pastors of the church have a responsibility to give oversight and uh, pastoral guidance to those that are under their care. And the members of a church have the responsibility to follow the leading of their pastors, to submit to their God-ordained leadership. How can that happen without church membership? We've seen already pastors are to care for people God's entrusted to them. I don't think that means I have a responsibility to every person who attends our church. I mean, we have some visitors here today, and we're happy to have you. I'm not your pastor. I know you already know that. Uh, I don't have any sort of responsibility for their souls. Okay, I'm not going to give an account to just anybody who walks in and sits in our church. I do believe I'm going to give an account for those who are members, for those who join our church and, uh, and make that commitment and say, yes, I want to be under your pastoral care. I do believe I have a, a responsibility to help lead and guide those members spiritually. And so when you join a church, you're basically saying, I'd like to be under the pastoral care of the elders of this church. I'm willing to enter into that relationship. Hebrews 13 verse 17 says, Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so, uh, who are your leaders that you submit to? Who watches for your soul? In other words, uh, we are to have people in our local church that we are accountable to, that help guide us, that help us to grow spiritually and follow Jesus. Notice here, the author of Hebrews says, the leaders of the church will give an account to God for those who are under their care. I want to know who it is that I'm going to give an account to God for. I want to know who it is that I'm responsible to help lead spiritually. And church membership makes that relationship clear. When you, join a, when you join a church, you are submitting yourself uh, to the authority of the pastors of the church, and now the pastors are taking on that role of spiritual shepherding for you. And so for those who say church membership isn't in the Bible, uh, sure, if you mean a formal process of voting members into the church, sure, that's, that may not be clearly seen in Scripture. But if you mean by church membership, committing yourself to a local church Submitting to the elders of the church, that is all over the Bible. And that's what we mean when we talk about church membership. If you're not a member for, of our church or of any church, who is watching for your soul? Who are your spiritual leaders that teach you the word of God and are keeping watch over you? In other words, who are your pastors? And you can't get a pastor on the internet. Uh, you can get great preaching on the internet, but they're not your pastor. If they don't know your name, they're not your pastor. Okay, They're not giving uh, oversight for you. They're not going to give an account to God for you. 
Uh, you need a, a pastor. You need a shepherd. You need multiple pastors, I should say. Again, we're not, we're not into this one guy model of church. Uh, but all over the New Testament, we see that we need pastors and shepherds who know us, who guide us in our walk with Christ. And as one of the pastors over this church, again, I will answer to God for those under my watch. If I'm going to have that level of responsibility for your spiritual health, I need to know who it is that's under my care. Joining the church tells me that you're a part of this family. So <clears throat> number three, we'll get into uh, a couple more reasons to join. Uh, spiritual accountability. Uh, this is a, a term I, I heard from a friend, a pastor friend of mine. I really liked it. Most people call it church discipline, but that just sounds, I don't know. I like spiritual accountability better. It sounds more positive, right? Uh, the Catholic Church calls this excommunication, okay? It's all referring to the same thing. Matthew chapter 18. Uh, this goes, by the way, beyond pastors having oversight. This is for everyone in the church, okay? Matthew 18, verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. By the way, I think it's interesting. This is the first mention of church in all of the, in all of the Bible, really, because uh, the word church obviously is a New Testament idea. And the first time that God mentions the church, he's telling us how to solve problems. I think he knows us pretty well, doesn't he? Uh, but notice the progression here. Jesus says, if you have an issue, if, if a brother in Christ sins against you in some way, uh, go to him directly. Okay? Uh, the Bible absolutely condemns gossip. We never talk about one another behind our backs. Okay? Instead, we confront face-to-face. -face. It's a lot harder, but it's also a lot better, and it's a lot healthier for those relationships. And so Jesus says, if, if you have an issue with somebody in the church, go to them directly and confront them. Okay, if they refuse to listen, if they refuse to repent or so, whatever the issue may be, take two or three others from the church with you and go and talk to them. Okay, if they refuse to listen to that group, then you bring it before the whole church. And if they refuse to listen to the church, then they are to be removed from membership. And this is something we see actually uh, in some of Paul's letters, specific instances in which this action was taken. Okay, 1 Corinthians 5, this is a, a place where someone was living in sin and they refused to repent. And Paul instructs them, the church in Corinth, to remove them from their uh, assembly, to remove them from membership. 1 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 1, Paul says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. So here is a man in the church of Corinth uh, that is having an inappropriate relationship with his uh, either mother or stepmother. Okay, talk about sick. That's pretty messed up stuff. Verse 2, uh, Paul tells them, You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. In other words, I think the sense there is that the church in Corinth just had a flippant attitude about this. Like they knew it was going on, and they were just like, ah, whatever. And Paul says, no, you ought to be weeping over this sin, this atrocity in your church, and you ought to remove this man from membership. Uh, verse 3, for though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul says there, remove this guy, kick this guy out of your church. And the goal there, you notice at the end, so that his spirit may be saved. The goal here is actually for the person's good. And always in, in church discipline, spiritual accountability, whatever you want to call it, the goal is restoration. Okay, the goal is not to go around just kicking people out of the church willy-nilly. Okay, this is a slow process intentionally. If I come and confront somebody in our church in sin, somebody that's you know, cheating on their spouse or something, uh, I would love for them to just repent and then we're done. We don't bring every sin before the church. It's only when someone is stubbornly unrepentant, refusing to submit to scripture, at that point, we continue that progression until eventually it's brought before the church and someone is removed from membership. And they're removed for two reasons. First, for the purity of the church. Okay, Sin should not be tolerated in church. Flagrant unrepentant sin, Paul says, do not tolerate that in your church. And again, this is that bride of Christ idea. 
We want to have a pure church in relation to Christ. The second reason to remove someone like this from membership, again, is for their own good. The idea is that in removing them, hopefully they will be so broken by that and feel the weight of their sin that they'll repent and they'll come back to Christ and be reconciled with the church. Let's continue reading verse 6. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out that old leaven. That, and it's talking about, again, the sinful man in the church that was uh, openly in flagrant in sin. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bre bread of sincerity and truth. Those are some really good words to think about in the... Uh, as far as the spirit of a church, a church ought to be sincere and a church ought to be marked by truth, not by flagrant sin. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Because he says if there is somebody who bears the name of Christ, okay, obviously we all have friendships in the world, that's fine. Paul says in the church, somebody who bears the name of brother, who claims to be a Christian, is living in this flagrant sort of sin. And by the way, just notice here, we're not talking about subjective things. Like, well, I think you're arrogant. Okay, well, everybody thinks everybody's arrogant. We're talking about clear-cut uh, severe violations of clear commands in Scripture. Like, this this is a good example, obviously, of uh, sexual immorality. He says, that sort of person should be removed from your fellowship. Verse 12, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. So if some member in the church is living in flagrant, unrepentant sin, they are to be confronted if they refuse to listen, they are to be removed from membership in the church. This is the command of God for every biblical church, not to tolerate open and flagrant sin. The church is to uphold the reputation of Christ in the community. Thus, purity is an important priority in every biblical church. And again, the goal of spiritual accountability is not to go around kicking everybody out of a church, but rather to help each other follow Jesus. That is the goal in all of this. When someone is straying in sin, uh, we confront them in love with the, I, with the aim of helping that person repent and follow Christ. When we confront them, we do so with the hope that they will respond to this confrontation with repentance, that they'll get back to following Jesus as they should. This is not a judgmental act, it's a loving act. Again, we don't gossip about people behind their back, we confront them to their face. And we confront the person in love for their spiritual benefit. And even when it comes to removing somebody from membership because they refuse to listen, even then the goal is still restoration. We want them to feel the weight of their sin against God, be convicted, and then repent and come back and reconcile with the church. And by the way, this is exactly what happens in 2 Corinthians 5. This is very possibly the very same man that was mentioned in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, kick that guy out of your church, and it seems that this man likely uh, repented and said, you know what? I was wrong. And he came back seeking restoration. Let's look at 2 Corinthians. Again, this is a, a later epistle written to the very same uh, church. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So he says, uh, that's referring to, you know, the majority of the church voted and removed this person from membership. Okay, verse 7. And again, he apparently had repented of his sin and was seeking to come back and be joined with the church. Verse 7. You should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Even in removing a person from membership, this was done in a heart of love. And now that he's turned around and said, you know what, I, I want to come back and follow Christ with you. Paul says, receive him back. Comfort him. Reaffirm your love for him. Forgive him. Spiritual accountability in the church is not a judgmental act. It's about helping each other to follow Jesus. When we see one of our members straying in some serious area of sin, we confront them, we urge them to repent and renew their commitment to Jesus. And this is for their spiritual benefit. And this process of holding one another accountable is true for everyone in the church. Uh, every member 
of a church has a responsibility to help every other member in the church to follow Christ. We take ownership for each other's spiritual growth. And so if you're a member of this church and you see a brother in Christ sinning in some way, you should, in love, confront them. You should talk to them. And if you're not a member of this church, you're leaving yourself unprotected. Your spiritual health is all on you. You don't have the support group and accountability that a local church provides. Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. A Satan is constantly looking for somebody to take down. Like a lion seeking its prey, Satan wants to destroy your life. And he tends to go after those who are wandering around by themselves. Those who are away from the pack. Those who are not plugged in to a local group of believers. But they're just trying to live their Christian life by themselves. And that's just not the way that God intended us to follow Jesus. Again, we need to remember the church was Jesus' idea. He came up with it. God never wanted people to just try to live for Christ on their own. Instead, he told us, gather with other believers. Help one another to follow Christ together with a community of believers in Jesus who encourage, comfort, stir one another up to love God and to live for him. With pastors that provide spiritual and uh, spiritual shepherding and teaching, this is the ideal setting in which spiritual growth happens. Uh, we recognize that a child growing up without a family is not ideal. Okay, that's not a good situation. But sometimes we think that we can grow spiritually all alone with no problem. A Christian trying to grow by himself with no connection to a local church is like a child trying to raise himself without a family structure in place. And again, I, I honestly think the problem is that some of us think we're stronger than we are. And we think, I don't really need other believers to help hold me accountable. I, I got this. And that sort of pride is very dangerous. The Christian life was meant to be lived in community with other Christians. And we've seen these phrases in the book of Acts. The church had all things common. They gathered together. They met in one another's houses. They had fellowship. They ate meals together. They devoted themselves to this life of following Jesus together. That's being a member of a church. Again, you don't do that for people in your gym. You do that for your family. So yes, there may not be a verse in the Bible that says you have to go through this formal membership process. You have to sign these uh, church documents. But this is the logical conclusion based on the model we've seen throughout the New Testament. Joining a church is committing yourself to a group of Christians and saying, yes, I am going to follow Jesus together with these people. Becoming a member of a church means you're taking on responsibility in the church. I wrote down four things, four areas of responsibility you're taking. Number one, the most obvious to some of us, to vote, right? Obviously, if you become a member, uh, you have the right to vote. This is, by the way, why we require uh, members to sign our church statement of faith, because we don't want people voting uh, that don't agree with our doctrine as a church. Uh, number two, another responsibility you have as a, a member is to follow Jesus and to be accountable in that. This includes, again, submission to the elders, learning from the Word of God, as well as growing together with the other members of the church. Number three, you have a responsibility as a member to help others to follow Jesus. We bring people into the church, and then we help them to grow spiritually. And you are taking on the responsibility to help others to grow and to be accountable. Matthew 28, Jesus said just before ascending to heaven, "'Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations.'" baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Being a member of a church is how that is accomplished. Jesus didn't tell people, go on your own and try to reach people by yourself. Uh, the Apostle Paul didn't just go and reach people individually and disciple them. He planted churches. He went all over Asia Minor, planting churches, bodies of believers that would grow together and follow Christ. And following Jesus together is what joining a church is all about. It's making that commitment, devoting yourself to a group of Christians, all wanting to help each other to follow Christ. Hebrews 10, verse 24, again, I'll read these verses. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are to stir up each other to love and good works. And we do that in the context of a local church gathering. We are to encourage one another. And we do that when we meet together as a church. I hope you see by now the idea, it's not okay to just kind of attend church like a movie, slip out the back door afterward. That's based on a very flawed view of what a church is. 
We think of the church as an event to attend instead of a family to commit to. But none of these verses say, come to church to hear a sermon. They say, come to church to help each other follow Christ. Come to church to stir one another up. Come to church to encourage one another. Uh, number four, the fourth responsibility you're taking when you join a church is to serve in the church. Uh, elders, deacons, ushers, scripture reading, teaching, song leading, on and on. Whether it's helping with our music, our teaching, our finances, some other aspect of church operation, membership allows you the opportunity to serve in your local church. We can't have people obviously serving in official capacities of our church that haven't made that commitment to our church family. And so every Christian should be a member of a church because every Christian has a role to play in the body of Christ. We all have spiritual gifts. Uh, we've talked about this some in the past, but we all have been given certain spiritual gifts by Christ. And I don't think, I'm sorry, by the Holy Spirit. I don't think these are um, just the way that we tend to think of them, like uh, teaching and, you know, maybe singing or whatever, those types of things. I think it goes beyond just that. I think talents that you have are actually given to you by the Holy Spirit in many ways uh, for the operation in the church. I think of in the Old Testament, Bezalel, uh, the guy that had been given gifts, it says, by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had given him talents to work with metal. I mean, think that's not very spiritual. And yet his talents, his skills that the Holy Spirit had given to him were used to make the vessels in the tabernacle. I think the same sort of principle applies in New Testament life. I mean, we've got Malachi over here who's very talented with graphic design. He designs all of our logos and things like that. It's a good example of uh, something like that that we might not think of as spiritual. Uh, even Rob, I, I'm not, I shouldn't start picking people out because I'm going to miss people, but even Rob, uh, not a member of our church yet. And yet he installed our cameras. He put up our security system. He's, you know, when, I, when we needed a security system, I pretty much just called him and said, hey, what do you recommend? And he did everything. Uh, those sort of skills and talents that people have uh, are very useful, obviously, in the local church. And they've been given to you by the Holy Spirit. But those spiritual gifts are not for you. Spiritual gifts are not given to you. They're given through you. They are given by the Spirit to the local church. Paul makes this clear in 1 Corinthians 12. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit, notice, for the common good. Your gifts that God has given you for, are not for you to just kind of hold on to and say, oh, this makes me feel really good that I can understand the Bible. Great, if you can understand the Bible, teach others in the church. Uh, use that gifting that God's given you for the common good of other believers. If you have some sort of knack for service or administration or whatever God's gifted you with, those skills are given to you in order to be used in church. And membership allows you to be able to exercise the gifts God has given you to bless others as God wants you to. And again, notice in those verses, every Christian has a part to play. Every Christian to each has been given. Uh, some sort of gifting. God's empowered in all, in everyone, these sort of spiritual gifts. And every Christian has a part to play in the church, and the body functions best when each member is doing their part. So to kind of recap uh, what we've seen thus far, six reasons to join a church, and uh, some of these I got, I got from Mark Dever, who's written quite a bit on the subject. Six reasons to join a church. Number one, join for your sake. You need pastoring. You need spiritual accountability. You need to be part of a local church family. That is God's design for your spiritual growth. Number two, join for the sake of weaker Christians. They need help following Jesus, and you can help them. Number three, join for the sake of stronger Christians, because they can help you. Even Jesus wanted a few friends to pray with in the Garden of Gethsemane, just to be there for him during his time of hardship. How arrogant is it for us to think that we don't need one another? Number four, join the church for the sake of the church. If you care about this church, don't you want to help it? A church membership allows you to serve with the gifts God's given you. If you give money to our church, as pretty much everybody in this room does, don't you want to have a voice in how that money is spent? And I say this only slightly jokingly. If I walk outside today and I get hit by a bus, uh, don't you want to have a vote in who the next pastor is of this church? And I say that again, a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but not really. <laughs> uh, you know, last, a year and a half ago when Brother Cole left, uh, only the members voted me in. Wouldn't you want to have a say in that, who the next church, who the next pastor of this church is? Or who's going to set the leadership and direction for our church? We need strong Christians to become members in order to help direct the church in the future, just as much as we need a good pastor to help direct the church. And so join 
for the sake of the church. Number five, join for the sake of the leaders in the church so that we know who it is that we're responsible to lead. I want to know who it is that's under my oversight, who it is that I'm going to give an account to God for. Number six, join for the sake of God. The church is his idea, and he shed his blood for the church. Ephesians 5.25 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If Jesus was willing to die for the church, why would you want to live your Christian life apart from it? Why would you rather try to follow Christ on your own instead of with other believers in the model that Jesus himself established for us? Now, I have one more question to cover. I know this has been a little bit long, but I told you I was gone last week, so you get two sermons in one. Uh, we're going to cover now the question of closed communion, because this is one I get all the time. I probably had six or seven different people in the church ask me, why do we restrict uh, the Lord's Supper to members? Why do we, and that's called closed communion. Uh, and I always say, whenever we take the Lord's Supper, that this is for the members of our church. If you're just visiting, let the plate pass by. You've all heard me say that before. Uh, why do we do that? Why do we only want members of the church to take the Lord's Supper? Here's some of the thinking behind that. First, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, said, This is my body, which is uh, for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread and drinks, sorry, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is why uh, before we take the Lord's Supper, we always have a time for prayer, for examination, and I always instruct you to uh, search your own heart for any sin that may be in your life. You do not want to take the Lord's Supper. If you have known sin, unrepentant sin in your life, Paul gives very strong warnings about that, continuing on in verse 29. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. In other words, God uh, takes the Lord's Supper very seriously. And when someone takes it and is not, has not first examined themselves and repented of sin, if someone just kind of flippantly takes the Lord's Supper, uh, God judges those people. Verse 30. I'm sorry, verse 31. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. In other words, if we examine ourselves, we don't have to fear the judgment of God for that. Verse 32. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait, one, wait for one another. Uh, there's a lot there in those verses, obviously. We're not going to take time to unpack it all. But the Lord's Supper is a memorial of the death of Christ. The bread symbolizes his body, which was Broken for us, the juice represents the blood of Christ, which was shed for us. I hope all of us are familiar with that. It's a time to remember what Jesus did, what he, what he uh, did on the cross to save us from our sins. And it's a time for us to recommit ourselves to his service. And Paul says, you should do this as a church. He says, wait for one another when you come together. Uh, don't do this at home by yourself. Do this as a church. Another important emphasis uh, Paul gives here is self-examination. He says, do not take the Lord's Supper lightly. We should first examine ourselves, repent of sin, before partaking of the bread and the cup. And that's why before we take communion here, again, we always have that time of prayer and self-reflection to, to ask the Lord, is there any sin in my life? Is there anything I need to repent of before I take this? Now, this is something, again, that should be taken very seriously. And so with all of that being said, who should be allowed to take the Lord's Supper? Now, considering the sober warning that Paul gives about not taking the supper unworthily, it seems best to limit this to church members. We don't want uh, first-time visitors who come in and may not even understand the gospel uh, taking the Lord's Supper. Obviously, we wouldn't want that for their sake. We wouldn't want that. Uh, and so what do we do? Do we say, okay, you can take it, you can't, you can take it, you can't? Uh, or do we just say, members of our church? That's kind of the easy place to draw the line is to say, this is for our members. Uh, one of the reasons that we do that is if you're a member of our church, uh, we've heard your testimony of salvation. Part of our membership process, I need to hear uh, your testimony of salvation, what you believe about the gospel, those sort of things. Uh, and so when we give the Lord's Supper to our members, we believe as best as we can that you are a true Christian, that you understand the gospel, and we know something of your spiritual health, because we as a church are a part of your accountability and shepherding of your soul. And so that's the primary reason that we limit communion to members. Certainly there 
uh, are some in our church that attend regularly, uh, that you're Christians, you have great understanding of the gospel, I'm not worried about that. But again, we have no way of really limiting the supper to those that we think should be taking it unless we draw the line at membership. So I hope that kind of makes sense just from a practical standpoint. Another aspect of this is uh, church discipline, what we talked about before. If someone is involved in persistent, unrepentant sin, and they're removed from membership, they should not be allowed to partake of the Lord's Supper. Okay, 1 Corinthians, fall, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter uh, not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or greedy uh, and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or viler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. Now, that may be more broad than this, but certainly that would include the Lord's Supper, where the church comes together for this meal representing Christ's uh, death. And so someone who is removed from membership should not be partaking of the Lord's Supper, uh, which sort of clues me into the fact that in, in the New Testament church, Lord's Supper probably was restricted to the members of the church. Because when you were removed from membership, you were also removed uh, from communion. That's why, by the way, the Catholic Church calls it excommunication, because uh, you are removed from communion. You're no longer to, uh, able to partake of that. Uh, verse 12, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges the outside, purge the evil person from among you. Again, we talked about those verses already. We're talking about uh, church members being those who should partake of communion. Baptism is the church affirming one's profession of faith. The Lord's Supper is a regular reaffirmation of that. Okay, so if the church has reason to doubt one's profession based upon their uh, lifestyle of unrepentant sin, they are to be restricted from the supper. The church cannot, in other words, go on in good conscience saying, we believe this person is a brother in Christ. Their, their profession of faith no longer appears credible because of their uh, lifestyle. And just to reiterate again, this would be sin of some sort of magnitude. We're not talking about some minor thing that, you know, we're talking about something flagrant, unrepentant, uh, not subjective. Okay, something that's a clear violation of Scripture. Now, um, let's move on to talk about uh, two more verses on this, okay? Uh, kind of to recap, I'm skipping some stuff because I have way too much notes here. But let's talk about uh, communion as an ordinance of the church. Okay, this is kind of, if you wanted one verse in the Bible that says, the Lord's Supper should be restricted to members, this is probably as close as it gets. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not per uh, participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break, is it not per uh, participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So there it seems to be that the members of one body partake of the one bread together uh, in the cup as, as a local church. Closing thoughts here. We'll be done here in just a moment. Church membership is following Jesus together. I hope uh, in all of the weeds and specific things I've tried to answer, I hope you get at least that. I hope you walk away understanding joining a church, being a member of a church, is following Jesus together. And the Bible makes clear that we are not to be independent Christians. Again, we are to bear one another's burdens. We are to provoke one another, stir one another up to love and good works. We're to hold one another accountable. We are to edify and build up. We are to comfort one another. We are to teach and correct one another. We are to confront one another when in sin. All of this is summed up in three words. Follow Jesus together. Church membership is committing to a body of doctrine, a body of believers, and the body of Christ. We are covenanting in membership to pray for one another, to commit ourselves to each other around a set of doctrines, to gather each week for worship, and more than that, to live connected lives with one another. We are in membership committing to each other to help to grow as we follow Jesus together. And why wouldn't you want to be a part of that kind of church. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.